when you open in another market and you're like, hey, we need to customize the product, it doesn't mean just change the language. You need to embed yourself in the culture. It's not about doing user research from the UK to launch in Mexico. It doesn't work that way. You need to go to Mexico or whichever country and then embed yourself, even if it's like for a few weeks, like a month, and really get a feel of people. When you do the user research, like face to face, you get to feel the market rather than to understand logically the market. And then you start getting that notch of what are the differences. Therefore, the how you need to communicate. And when you couple that with let's say the science and art of doing user research, you start seeing patterns, but from a much more informed, intuitive, and also data-driven place rather than just logic. Because then when you understand the customer at that level in their context, then the resistance is less because yeah. you get them. There is not that barrier of you coming as a foreign entity and then you're trying to impose your product and it's like, why? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A Girl in the Product World for the season two, episode one. I'm so excited to bring this to you. This is our first video recording that's going to be published. So, so excited and even more excited to bring to you my special guest, who's very dear to my heart. I've been following her journey and she's amazing. And she is Monica. Hello, Monica. Hello, Kayamna. Hello, everyone. Really very happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Oh, uh, it is absolutely my pleasure. Monica is first and foremost a super achiever. That's how I think of it <laughs> in all that she does. Uh, and you're going to see why in this episode. Um, she is a fintech product leader. And she started off her career working for some of the world's biggest brands, such as Visa and Barclay Card. She was one of the first joiners of Tandem Bank, which you may have heard of, which is, for those of you on, not in the UK, it was a, it is a UK challenger bank. And we'll go into that a little bit later. And she was working with their CEO on building the strategy for the launch of Tandem Bank. She now works for Big Pay, based in Malaysia, within product. She's also on the board for PayEd, and she runs her podcast called Purpose Driven Fintech. Monica, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Amna. Thanks so much. Now let's get right into this. Yep. Could you please describe in your own words your journey and where you are currently? Oh, that's a very long journey, <laughs> but I'll try to summarize. Tell us everything. Yeah. <laughs> so my journey, I wanted to study gastronomy. I like cooking. That's how it started. I like cooking. And one of my friends in high school, she was like, no, you're good at science. You don't study gastronomy. You study engineering. <laughs> and because of her, I ended up studying engineering, which then led me to find my first job, not in the travel or hotel industry, but instead in a bank, in a development bank. So my very first job was in a development bank in Mexico. And it happened to be in the product team. So I was very lucky. So basically, I had a very early exposure to product since the beginning of my career, same as financial services. And then basically, after that role, 
I moved to the UK to study my master's IT management. So it was like a good compliment. Like you said, I worked for the big brands, which was really good in the sense that I learned how the financial services institutions work roughly, like retail banking, because in Barclay especially, I had exposure to, let's say, how to run campaigns. Back then it was like, we would st still send letters to customers on the post. So it's like, I would run, I would work with all the departments in, in the company, let's say, operations, legal, customer service, data, like all of that. And then I would work with them to launch the campaign. And then basically what happened was like, I had all this exposure and one day, basically I was looking, they were looking, I met Ricky Knox, who's the founder of Tandem Bank. And I had the opportunity to leave corporate, leave Barclays, and then jump into what was the entrepreneurial journey and help him start a new bank from scratch. And then for context, I remember this is 2015 or so, and then fintech was still not the big thing that it is today. So when I left Barclays, people asked me, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to a new bank. And I said, like, a new bank? Are you sure? What's the name? And I said, oh, it still doesn't have a name. It's very early stages. And the response was like, are you sure it's not a scam? <laughs> and I was like, well, it seemed like she said. So it was that early stages that the company was still like in stealth mode. This is eight years ago or so. And that was the beginning of the journey that I didn't know I was going to go into. And it was fascinating because I was one of the very first joiners in Tandem. So I got to work properly, like side by side with the co-founders since the very beginning. And that was life-changing because not only we were building the bank from scratch, but they are amazing humans and amazing leaders. Mm -hmm. So whenever I was like, I want to learn. I want, I learned by osmosis. I want to sit next to you. I want to work with you. They did everything that they could for me to work with them. So that's how I learned to build a bank from scratch by learning from people who had already built a fintech from scratch. And basically that like my years in tandem were absolutely amazing. And then an opportunity came up. I got a phone call one day. They were like, hey, this opportunity in Asia. I said, no, thank you. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested. I'm happy in London. And then a month later, they called me again and they're like, hey, this opportunity. And I was like, well, tell me more. And then to make the story, the long story short, basically they were like, these guys, they are really interested. They are in London. The founders are in London. Why don't you go for a coffee? There is nothing to lose. That's where it all starts, doesn't it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's, there's nothing to lose. I was like, it's a good sales tactic, but yeah, there's nothing to lose. I'll go for a coffee. And that's it. That was the beginning of the second, the second journey that it was like, I ended up moving to Malaysia as part of the founding team of BigPay, leading the product team. And then basically, I think the big step change for me was I felt like in tandem, I was part of the team that was helping the leadership team build a bank and, the, and they had experience on how to do this. And then now I was moving, it was scary and exciting. So I was moving to another country, to another continent, like to a new company, new culture altogether. But instead of being part of the team, supporting the leadership team, this time I was moving as the leadership team. And that for me was like, oh, that is 
cool. Of course, I was a little bit like freaking out as expected, <laughs> but yeah, so it's been six years, uh, almost six years. So we launched Big Pay from scratch. We've gone through COVID. We've gone through ups and downs, of course, launching different products, learned a ton. And as of today, we have about 1.37 million transacting customers, which is a lot. We are live in Malaysia, in Singapore, and expanding in Southeast Asia very soon too. So it's been a fascinating journey. The company we started, of course, like a startup. Right now we have over 200 people. So even my role has changed a lot in the past mm. six years. I've covered all sorts of products that you can think about. But even now as we're growing, it's... I can see what's happening in the company. I think we moved from a startup to an established startup to now a scale-up. So even the ways of working are changing because we're growing. So it's been fascinating, in short. Wow. I, I'm not sure fascinating does that journey justice, but wow, amazing. And there's so much to unpack there. And I'm going to start at tandem. So mm -hmm. what is it actually like sitting with the CEO? Because I've met Ricky Knox. And I, I used to be at the tandem offices on the uh, supplier side. I've met him and amazing guy, but whoa, he's a personality. What is that actually like to be amongst people like that? How did that make you feel? I know you learned a lot, but how oh, did that make well, you No one has ever asked me that question. <laughs> That's a very good question. So. I have the belief that you become the sum of the p five people that you hang out with the most. And I used to have that belief since then. So I was a sponge. So I was there to learn from him. I was there, not from him, like from everyone. Right? Because what Ricky did really well, I remember I used to tell my family and friends, it was like, oh, like when you go to the Olympics, you have like really good teams and then you have properly the A team, the Olympics team. So Ricky did an amazing job in hiring the Olympics team of fintech, basically. And what he did is he didn't bring a bunch of bankers or financial services people. He brought very diverse backgrounds with no financial services experience so that then we could innovate and see things in a different manner. He is an amazing leader as such and super energetic. Probably that's where we get along well. Like we're both very energetic. And uh, how was it like working with him? It was just like amazing. It was life-changing. Working with him and with Nick properly was life-changing because if I were to, to look back, what the two of them did with their behavior with their words, with their promises, with their energy, with everything over the years, not one time, but like week by week, month by month, they demonstrated to me what it feels like when someone really believes in you. So basically they gave me the project of, we're building a bank from scratch. Monica, you need to launch credit cards. And I was like, what? I don't know how to do this. And it was like, yeah, you'll figure it out. Kind of attitude. 
And I did. Yeah. But I was still very young in my career, but I did. And then I remember having a conversation with Nick once and I was like, wow, I did it. It's I did it. And he was like, yeah, and you can do anything you want. So I think that's what I, the confident Monica that you see today, the risk taker, the courage, the all of that, I had it in me. Yes, mm -hmm. I had it in me. But it was because of my experience with them that came to life later. So even, especially when I first moved, like when I struggled, even though I did not call them, I was like, they are there for me. As like, they were my ex-bosses, but it's, I know I can go and ask for help if I need help. And they'll be there for me. So that is like priceless. Having someone believe in you the way that they did with me changed my life. I absolutely love that. And yeah. by the way, I can 100% attest to the culture that was created at Tandem. Just as you described, it was so obvious to see that is how everyone felt. It was this open atmosphere that we on the supply side, I'll be honest, we were envious of it. <laughs> because er, er, anyone could literally go and speak to Ricky when he was at his desk go and speak to Nick everyone was on the same mission and you're right I, I met so many people within Tandem from diverse backgrounds but everyone was just so on it it was amazing <laughs> to see and I, I've not seen a, a workforce like that since then as well no. it really was an olympic dream team no a hundred percent attest to that so i and i'm so happy that you were part of it and this is the result this is just a shining example of how leadership can build someone up yes it, it really is that difference yes and it. that's also why i'm so passionate about mentoring and the podcast and sharing all that because like they did that for me like is that domino I know, effect? I know how it feels. I know the impact that it had in my life. Therefore, you just have to do it for someone because you want it. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Like change. Now, you... Obviously, you moved to Malaysia and oh, it's a huge change for anyone to go through. I know you had the coffee and the rest is history, You've done revolutionary work there. How is it different compared to the UK or other fintech markets? Because you yourself, so you, you, you are from Mexico. Mexico. Yes. It's different there too. Mm -hmm. So how does it compare with mm -hmm. the kind of challenges that you've had? Fascinating. So when I made the decision to move, I flew to Malaysia for three days when I was still in tandem, right? And then when I brainwashed myself, I was like, they speak English, they drive on the same side, they have the similar brands, they had Ted Baker right in front of me. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, it's familiar. And then on the other side, like the guys that were really nice convincing me and great hosts, they were like, no, but it, there's a lot of traffic and it rains a lot and there's a lot of inequality and there's also poverty and corruption. And I was like, that sounds like Mexico. So in my mind, I, it was 
quote-unquote easy to move when I made the decision because it was, I would find similarities either with the UK or with Mexico. That was as a country. But when I moved, in the UK, we were like Monster Revolut, Starling, Atom Bank. They had already launched. So you could be out and about in London and you could see like the pink card and the Revolut card and it was a thing. When I moved to Malaysia, that was non-existent. So fintech as such was in very early stages. And when I first got here and we were doing a lot of user testing, just like the very first version of the product and it was super buggy, I could test with customers the onboarding flow and they could be like, but why do I need to take a picture of my ID? Why do I need a selfie? I was like, oh, so that you don't go to, it's like, to the bank and we were like, but why? So there was a lot of resistance on why do you need a picture of my identity? So that was a, a friction point because the market was not familiar with what a fintech was. So it took us months to educate people mm. and go through that barrier. Of course, after COVID, everything changed, right? Because now everything is super digitalized. But even before COVID, like we were one of the very first fintechs and the difference was other fintechs were popping up in the market, but they were part of way bigger groups, not a smaller independent. We, are, we also had like a very strong shareholder erasure, right? But still, we were a startup. We didn't have like money to throw away to people while the other fintechs that were just starting. They were more like QR payment fintechs. And then basically they were giving people vouchers and discounts and cashback. They were buying customers. We never did that. So our product was very based on the value that we were giving to customers, rather the value that we were buying customers with. So I think the biggest difference against the UK right now, right then, back then was that the market maturity, it was extremely fresh here. And it's funny because like now, six years later, like Asia is like in some elements, it's in my opinion, ahead of the UK. Mm -hmm. So the cross border, the QR payments, like the national QR payments, it's been active in Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, like many of the countries yeah. for over a year now, and it's widely adopted. Everybody has a QR. You just go around paying with QR. But now it's not even QR payments. It is cross-border QR payments. So if I have my Malaysian bank or my, let's say my big pay, and then I travel to Thailand, I don't need to go to the ATM and get cash because these societies are still very cash-based. Right. So not everyone accepts cards. So if you are not from that country, you need to have access to the QR code. You need to have a local bank. But now that's changing. Now it's cross-border interoperable QR payments. So I, with a Malaysian bank, travel to Thailand or Singapore, and I use my same app, and I scan in the local merchants with a national QR code from Thailand, let's say. So that's cool. It's, it's grown a lot. That's amazing. And I want to go back to what you said about resistance in different 
cultures because this is something that I think all of us experience when we're launching products that do very well in the UK and then we go global, etc. For me, when I was at Noma Bank, it was a completely different market to start off with. So our user research and everything, we had to be very cognizant of the fact that these are not UK customers. They bank in a very different way. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you get over that resistance and actually educate people? Like, what does that involve? <laughs> That's a very deep question that I am not sure we all have the answer to. But what I like, the thread that I'm seeing here, it's like, hey, when you, let's say, open in another market and you have your product and you're like, hey, we need to customize the product. What does that mean? Yeah. It doesn't mean just change the language. You need to, it's, you need to embed yourself in the culture. Yeah. It's not about doing user research from the UK to launch in Mexico. Doesn't work that way. You need to go to Mexico or whichever country and then embed yourself, even if it's like for a few weeks, two or three weeks, like a month, and really get a feel because you get a feel of people. You get, when you do the user research, like face to face, you get to feel the market rather than to understand logically the market. And then, given that you get to feel the market rather than logically understand, you start getting that notch of what are the differences. Therefore, the how you need to communicate. And when you couple that with, let's say, the science and art of doing user research, you start seeing patterns, but from a much more informed, intuitive, and also data-driven place rather than just logic. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. It's about, because then when you understand the customer at that level in their context, then it's, there's no, the resistance is less because yeah. you get them. Yeah. You understand. That you, you get them, them yeah. then it's easier. There is not that barrier of you coming as a, especially if you're coming as a foreign entity, it's like coming as a foreign entity and then you're trying to impose your product and it's like, why? And going through that process, I wonder, do you ever think, are we doing the right thing? Oh, all the time. It, it, talk us through that because that, that, that can be very scary. A lot, of a lot of companies will base their whole business case off a hypothesis. And you, I think as a as team, sometimes you don't have the chance to prove it wrong. You've just got to gotta go for it. And that's why so many fintechs will eventually fail. We'll go into that later. But... How do you handle that? How do you go back to your CEOs and say, I don't think this is the right thing? Okay. So there's two questions in there. I'll answer the first one, the last one first. How did you tell your CEOs? You just tell them. Bluntly. I don't think this is going to work. And then they'll look at you. That's happened to me before. Especially when I moved to Malaysia. Back then. I remember this conversation perfectly. This is not going to work. He was like, what do you mean? It's, <laughs> no, it's, you hired me to tell you 
like the mistakes that I've seen somewhere else, I'm telling you, we're setting ourselves up for failure. This is not going to work because of A, B, C, D. So when you work in a startup, there is no room for being shy on your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Because if you are, then you're doing yourself and the team and the company a disservice. So you just have to be upfront and have the difficult conversations. And then you may be like, I may be hallucinating, but my assumption is that, and if the CEO or the management team are receptive, you as a team could listen to that hunch mm. and be like, oh, tell me more rather than be defensive, tell me more. And then you express your concerns and then you risk mitigate. But it comes back with to you having the courage to say that. And then ideally, the company has a culture that allows you to say that. Psychological point. Very good point. And I think it's something that I've certainly found working with certainly startups and smaller companies is you have to have this bravery about you and everyone around you also has to be quite brave. And sometimes that could be very hard because that could even be feedback for your team that someone else is being brave with sharing. So it's, it's certainly a characteristic that I found is something you need to really arm yourself with yeah i forgot the first question <laughs> so there did was, i i'm <laughs> like there were two questions in there i think it was more around is, is similar things how you question yourself with is this the right thing to do and how do you handle that ah, yes i remember now yeah so in the world of product development as there's two, two teams. <laughs> the team that says, hey, do as much user research as you can and validate the idea and prototype and then you launch. And the team that says, hey, build the thing, build the MVP, ship as fast as you can, put it in the hands of the customer and that gives you the feedback. I'm in the middle. <laughs> I think I'm more towards the ship something fast MVP and then build upon that, but do it in a smart way, which means don't build something fast blindly, do all the user research, but don't get stuck in the user research so much that you're delaying the launch. Our, the secret to a successful fintech slash tech startup on the early stages is speed. That's the only thing that we have because compared to the incumbents, the established players, they have more money, they have more people, they have more everything, but the culture is different. They have more bureaucracy as well, more decision-making hoops to jump through. As a startup, you're like, like I said, like I used to sit next to a CEO, right? Like you just hang out with a very small team. So decision-making can be fast and execution can be fast and smart. You have the ability to move very fast and uh, try. But you need to be smart too. Yeah. And everything you said there about the, the big incumbents is they don't have that speed. They Because they've got all of these hoops to go through, 
I remember when I used to work in the corporate world, everything just takes 10 times longer to do. And it certainly is an advantage for people to take up their stride. Cool. Now, I want to get into a little bit more specifics about you. And from my experience of working in fintech, I've learned the sheer scale of it and all the things that are involved. And I've seen many people make a career out of just one area, for example, payments. We say payments is, if you think about it, it's part of a transaction. It's part of how we handle our money, but it's huge within itself. And there, there are all sorts of roles around it as well. What area of fintech do you enjoy the most and why? I've been working on neobanks for the past seven years. So I would say I enjoy B2C more than B2B slash within the fintech world. The B2B space, I've only experienced it as a customer who's buying a solution for the fintech. And the reason why I like B2C more is because you get to build something that's going to reach the final customer. And one of the things that I love is the discovery process. Love doing discovery process, love talking to customers, love going to interviews, focus groups, and all that stuff. So all that brainstorming process, I think it has a little bit more of heart and soul when it's for a consumer than for a, another business, as in large business. But when I say consumer, like consumers and small businesses as well. So they fall in that category. So I would say that's my area, like B2C rather than B2B. But I'm open, of course, like in the future. Oh, let's try something else. Like, of course. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's very wholesome the way you describe it, right? Like you are there impacting customers who are going to be using your product. Exactly. Versus very corporates. Cool. Yes. Very cool. Right. So then fintech is, is exciting. But we all know how stressful it can be and listening to your story as well as, as exciting and refreshing as it is, I can imagine <laughs> there is a lot of stress there. Can you share what has been your worst day in this crazy financial services world that we know and why wow. and, how, and how you overcame it? My worst day? Ah, oh, yes, I know. And it's not what people may think. The worst day in my fintech career was when Tandem went through the funding crisis. That's the worst day. And what I can tell you why it was the worst day is because my flatmate at the time was like, Monica, I've never seen you like this. What's wrong? <laughs> That's why I'm like, oh, yeah, it's that one. It, it was like, uh, I was like, everyone was devastated because like we were, the context is for everyone. We had built the bank. We had a community of co-founders. We call them co-founders, but it's basically early stage customers. Our raving fans, let's say, that helped us build the bank. It was a community. And then we were getting ready to launch. Ricky had launched, had secured 30 million pounds, which is a lot of money. 
that was January. Then they gave us the first tranche. And when it comes March, they were going to give us the second tranche. And then the deal fell through. And it was an overnight thing. And I, re I remember perfectly because it was the week of my birthday. It was like, I was at that time, I remember I had issues with the place that I was living. I was living with a, I was flat sharing and I was with a creepy landlord. So I remember it. that week I was like, oh my God, because I cried in the office. <laughs> Rebecca was there. And I was like, Rebecca was like, are you okay? I'm like, no, everything's falling apart. <laughs> like the house situation and now the bank doesn't, like we've lost all the money. But it's very interesting because the fact that we had lost all the money overnight, that meant that it was the end. Yeah. It came as a surprise. And it's, okay, we've been building this thing for almost two years. And, be, and we have an amazing team and we're ready. But because of an externality, we cannot. Yeah. We lost the banking license. That's it. We had to acquire Harvard's bank to be a, a bank again. It, that was very disappointing. And it was emotional. And it, I didn't know how engaged I was with work, how much I loved work. Until I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. It, it's a very good display of your passion. <laughs> but it makes complete sense. Maybe you were there from the beginning and you were so immersed in it. And I think everyone was so immersed in it. And I remember when it, when it happened and it was, it was absolutely devastating and, and also, just reading it uh, from an external point of view, it was awful. So I can't imagine what it was like for you. Um, how did you bounce back? Oh, I'm like a little bunny that bounces back all the time. <laughs> um, at the time, I remember I was obviously stressed out, right? And you're thinking about job security. We were all put at risk. So thought about job security and I had two thoughts. One is like the few days after I would see the face of the founding team and they were equally devastated as I, like you can see in people's faces and everything. It's like people were stressed out. I could see that in them. But then by day three or something after they shared the news, they were back into their high performance mode. And I was like, oh, wow, that's impressive. And I remember I asked Nick, I was like, how do you do it? You look so cool and fresh now. I saw him like with a shake, but then he was like back on it. And he was like, oh, it's with experience. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and it was more like, yeah, it's not that I, I learned from them. I learned from Ruth. I learned from Ricky. I learned from Nick. I saw them how they were knocked out with this news yeah. and they were human and they showed emotion and their facial expression showed emotion. But within two days or so, they were back in high performance mode to save the company. And we just all went back into high performance mode to be able 
to continue. And the company is currently like an established green yeah. fintech. Like it's an established bank. So not only it survived, but it's growing. Sure, so yeah. I learned from them how to, I learned by example. That's how I coped with it. Learned by example. And another example of how they've been an example and have mm-hmm. led. And I love what you said there also. They were human. So for the, for the first like, two days, they actually showed they were stressed and it was very open for everyone to see. And you, you almost all took that grieving time together. And then you, you bounce back together as well, which is just a lovely thing to, to hear. And to add to that, the management team had to make very tough decisions. Like Ruth left the company. I think Nick also left the company at the time, but these were decisions of how are we going to restructure the company such that the company has the best chance to survive. And they made really difficult decisions that affected them personally. Yeah. And that was impressive. Respected them a little bit more. Yeah. It just shows that there was a mission there that everyone had to accomplish. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Now, given your vast experience, what would you say are the top trends in the fintech world on a global level? And I am, I, to be honest with you, I couldn't wait to ask you this question because of your experience, but also your global coverage as well. Because I think from experience as well, like looking at how finance in general is seen in different parts of the world and also within different de- demographics me working with an Islamic finance, I've seen how it's different between men and women, um, mm. between the different age groups as well. So what would you say are the top kind of trends globally? Yes. Or is it that it's just completely different everywhere? So this is part of, well, this is the topic of my talk in Money 2020. <laughs> what are the trends? So... The very first one that I see is interoperability. And with interoperability, what we're seeing is, like I mentioned before, we have like two big trends that it's one is QR payments, real-time payments at a, with national rails that now they are becoming international as well. And this is without using Visa, MasterCard, the usual rails. This is like proper interoperability that I live in Malaysia, I travel to Singapore and I can scan. I travel to India and I can scan without changing my app. That is like amazing. But as part of that interoperability as well, the other factor or use case that comes in, it's of course like open, it's not open banking, but like open finance and open data. Because then when you put these two together, it's properly an interoperable life, I I guess, an ecosystem. So it's like the word ecosystem among uh, institutions. That's like a big one. That's number one. Number two is the big trend that it's starting, but it has to accelerate very soon, is green finance. And then there's two, two, three elements to that. One is, let's say, sharing economies, how are customers starting to change their behavior? How are we going to become, let's say, less consumer-driven 
And then how are fintechs going to support that? Because it's not good for buy now, pay later, right? Like we're yeah. considering that much, but it's more like which type of products are going to support an economy where it's more of a sharing economy that is supportive of the environment in a sustainable way. But it's not just that. It is also the, as we move to digital currencies, we need to think about what does that mean to the environment? And right now we don't have a, a strong answer, but we will. It's just a matter of time. We will come up with an answer that it's like, hey, if we were to use digital currencies and the energy consumption, at some point it has to be like net zero. But the, the third bullet point, let's say, within green finance is the regulators. The regulators are starting to issue a lot of new requirements for financial institutions to report or all their data, which is amazing. I love that. Singapore, like MAS, the Monetary uh, Authority of Singapore, they are super active on this. Not only they are super active, but coming back to interoperability, they are now working with China such that between the two countries, this reporting is interoperable as well. <laughs> so that is huge. I think we're going to see a big boom. And then the fourth one that it's ob obvious, but not obvious, it's uh, obviously it's the AI. How is it going to impact the industry? I think there's two ways, two angles to this one. The first one is hyper-personalization of services. So we will properly start to see products and services customized to me and my financial needs. And I will actually have a money advisor in my pocket because it knows everything about me. This is what fintechs have been trying to do since the beginning of the fintech times, but it has taken time. Now it's like it's going to accelerate us. So the other trend within AI, it's like robots, as in robot processing, let's say, that it's like, how are we going to become much more efficient? When I think of a department, whether that's product, finance, marketing, CE, like whichever department I think of, I can think of use cases on how to use ChatGPT. That will make my job so much easier. So there's fear that ChatGPT slash AI tools will replace people. Mm -hmm. I think we need to turn that around its head and be like, how can AI make us superhumans? Because we still have about 2 billion people in the world that are underbanked. 2 billion. That means we are not high-performance companies. None mm -hmm. of us. We are not doing world-class product. We're not doing world-class fintech. We have a lot to grow. So instead of worrying about how are we going to get rid of people and this and the other, it's more of a, hey, let's think about how we can use AI to become more efficient, more superhumans, reduce cost such that we can reach those 2 billion people who are unbanked or underbanked. And the other bunch of billion that, to me, right now, everyone is underbanked. With the, the rising cost of living, we are all underbanked. We're all under, under financial stress. Unless you're a super millionaire, like, who's not struggling with stress right now, with financial stress right now? Everyone is. 
So I think that's a big one that can have a lot of impact. So I think the, the first one is interoperability. It's a fact. That's what we're seeing. Green, we have to because the world is in a crisis. AI, it's just inevitable. And because of all of that, we're also going to see, in my opinion, a very high growth in fraud. <laughs> we saw it during COVID. We're going to see it again. Therefore, all the KYC, fraud monitoring, transaction monitoring companies within the industry, if they are not working on this already, they are already behind because whomever is working on this is going to win big time. And then because of all of these things, this is my very personal opinion, is that the future of fintech is to be more human. It's very simple. We need to be able to go back to our roots and say, hey, we're here to help people have better lives with money. We're here to help people have less financial stress. How do we do good products such that we can deliver that promise? That's my take. Wow. And I love that we got a preview too. <laughs> So much there. But there's two points that I really want to pick on is with green banking, it is something that's growing. People are more conscious of it. What's the impact of us not being green with within the financial services? Mm. I'm not the expert on green as such. However, what I'll answer the question the opposite way. I think we as financial institutions can have huge impact because we see trillions of dollars going through the ecosystem every single day. We become part of, not that it's even a necessity, it's just like something that we do, just like checking our phones. Like we all have, well, not we all, all the banked people, <laughs> we all have a card, we all have a phone, an app, like online banking, like. It's part of our lives. It's just like eating and breathing. Yeah. So it could be very irresponsible of all of us if we were not doing something about it. Because we have the potential and the responsibility and the impact and the infrastructure and the brains and the people and the money to do it. If we choose not to do it, then we know where the world is going. Like it's a very dark future for everyone. That's it. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you talk about unbanked people, and you also said people who perhaps they, they do banking, but they're still um, yeah. underbanked. What do you mean by that? How and, and how do we make sure everyone is at a level where they are, where they should be at peace with their banking? I think you use the right word. That is my personal belief that it's we, I believe in financial safety for all. And if I were to summarize financial safety is that I feel at peace. I feel at peace with my, with my finances. I can buy what I need. I can also afford like a holiday, a luxury, a blouse or like 
I can afford that. And I feel at peace with my retirement plan. I feel at peace with my medical options, if I have medical private or not, but like having like good medical. If I feel, I think most of us panic with the idea of losing our jobs. So if we do not have financial safety, I consider ourselves underpaid. I consider myself underpaid. Do I have a very strong retirement plan? No. Do I live outside of Mexico, outside of UK and in Malaysia where I cannot get a mortgage? Where do I get a mortgage? Yeah. I'm like, I'm underbanked. And if I'm underbanked, every single one of us has an element of underbanked in our very particular way. That's why hyper-personalization is so important because the definition of underbanked will be different for everyone. Oh, wow. That, that makes so much sense, the way you said that. Oh, my God. Cool. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a switch now. Okay. And I want to ask, you are huge on mentoring. And you mm-hmm. touched upon, you, you learned from your seniors, you saw the impact it had on you, and you want to give that back to the world, which is inspiring in itself. But could you... Tell us more about why it's so important to you because you do a lot of uh, work on mentoring, but also empowering women as well. And it's clearly a passion of yours. Why is it so important? I'm like, you answer, you ask very good questions. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm like, oh, I haven't expressed this before, not in a podcast. So why? I struggled a lot as a young adult. My mom passed away when I was young. I was 20. I moved to the UK. I was 25. I struggled. And the pain was there, right? I didn't know how to process that pain. But the what helped me start my journey of processing all that pain, and it took me many years, was coaching and personal development. And I got in debt to get a coach. And my bank at the time gave me a credit card with a very high limit that I was like, I will not use it. I will not use it. I will not use it. And at some point I was, wanted this coaching program and I used it. But the reason why I wanted that coaching program was because I was in pain and I was looking for solutions and I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't take drugs. So I didn't go that route. I went that healthy route, which is good. <laughs> So I use personal development, coaching, seminars, and all that stuff to help myself go through life. That's what it was. I helped myself go through life. But I did get in debt. And people in the UK, my bosses in the UK, they were helpful all the time. Many times I was like, oh, I'm like the foreigner. Many Mm -hmm. times. Different accent, look different, like whatever, different personality. So it's just like gratitude to all the people that did support me in the journey. And I just look back and I was like, I was very lucky. 
that I was in pain, but I saw, I found a solution in front of me and I pursued that solution. I paid for it. Yes, the best investment that I've ever done. I became the woman that I am today. But not everyone has that opportunity or that vision or that credit card to get in debt. So it's just part of what I do by now. <laughs> yeah, I just do it because it's embedded in me. You have grown yourself out of it being in a bad place. Yes. And it, it's because I've learned from others and because somebody helped me. I've always been super positive, right? So that mindset helped me as well. Yeah. But it would, we are not islands. We are part of a community. And if somebody trusted, like my first boss in the UK trusted me and gave me a job in the middle of 2008 crisis. Oh, it was that time. It was that time when I got my wow. first job at Visa. He, he gave the job to me when at the time, we as foreigners, we knew Jobs go first to Brits, second to Europeans. They don't go to Mexicans. <laughs> but he did. Yeah. And then eventually, like when I moved to Barclays, it was the same. I applied for the job and my future manager happened to be friends or colleagues or something with one of my colleagues in my previous job. Ask for, oh, how about this girl, Monica? And this other woman, she spoke very highly of me. And that's it. That's how I got the job, right? It's because of all these little, quote unquote, coincidences and acts of kindness from different people that I've been able to grow. And I love that you recognize it as well, because I feel a lot of us don't, we don't learn from people enough and also the positives that they give us. And I love that you fully recognize it, you take it on board and it impacts how you handle and work with the community around you. And it's almost like it, for you, it, it's a very subconscious thing. You, you do it without knowing, but I feel it's a skill that a lot of us should have because helping people around us is something. I think sometimes we do it because we get that help, but we don't realize it. Exactly. And I think right now it's, easier yeah. because of internet yeah so the podcast is mentoring at scale social media is mentoring at scale it, i don't need to be sitting if ricky knox got a podcast i don't need to sit next to him and work yeah. with him to learn from him yeah i can just listen to his thoughts yeah so it's social media is allowing us to amplify mentoring Monica, it has been an absolute pleasure as every conversation with you is. And I'm so happy I get to share this conversation with everyone. So thank you so much for your answers, your honesty, your truth, and just telling us of your experiences. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited for your future. Thank you. Thank you, Abna. It's been a pleasure. You asked really good questions. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. Your time and energy means a lot. 
If you want to support the show, remember to give it a follow and DM me to get in touch. I promise I do respond.